Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Good morning, B3 Nation. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. We do this every Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time with a special Sunday show, our weekend edition at 5.30 Eastern Time as well. Good to have you all with us. We're on at Get Rev Radio, so follow us and follow the speakers and feel free to share to retweet the space so others can join in. We love doing this. John, Mark, Alex, good to see or hear you guys. I can't really see you, only your only your little web icons. Wait till we're doing this in video. But uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. How's everyone doing today? Doing well, my man. Hanging in there, big guy. Both in, in lovely <laughs> Puerto Rico, huh? Uh, I am not yet, but I will be tomorrow. Got it. And Alex, Alex is on the run. He just hides out in Puerto Rico. That's his. That's his hangout. <laughs> no one can find him. Well, I know John. I know John's not here because he hasn't texted me to go out to dinner yet. Or, or, or drunk in crypto on a boat. We're going to do the drunk in crypto Twitter spaces where we talk crypto stories. Um, and do we have Marco Presti here with us? I don't see him uh, yet, he, he Rob. Might been, um, he might have been, you know, captured by the SEC. He could have been Jerry Gensler's coming after him. Because <laughs> like, he, you know, or the Fed. Well, listen. Um, we're, we, when Mark joins us, we will uh, we will jump into that. But let's jump in right now to a quick overview of the trad markets, John. You um, you know what kind of what stood out to you this week? Obviously, we're going to talk about the debt. Everybody, we're going to talk about the debt ceiling and the debt action that happened and the, the crisis that was averted. But other than that, John, which you said the markets for the most part were already not paying that close attention to or, or paying attention, but going they're going to last minute solve it. Um, and I will admit I was wrong. They did last minute solve it. Um, what else? St what stood out to you so far? I mean, it's a short week, but we're near the end of our short week. Um, and thank you, Rob. Rob Nelson live. Um, I, I think, Rob, it, the thing that stood out to me today, uh, and I mentioned is this on Fox today as well, was the uh, delinquencies on credit cards and I think virtually everybody that has heard me or any of the four of us um, knows that we're optimists. We're not pessimists, but we are also realists. And the reason I bring up the delinquencies is we've talked about the trillion dollars that's on credit cards. They're getting later and later with their pay, uh, meaning, of course, that, you know, you could be 30 days, 45 days, 90 days, the longer you're taking to pay off that credit card, 
the the more you're paying in interest um, rather than cutting into your uh, you know the principal that you owe. And the reason that that's uh, notable today, Rob, is that we are now at the levels that we were at in the height of the great financial crisis, 2008. So if you've got consumers that are obviously, in some cases, trading down, in other cases, I can give you several examples where they're not trading down, like Chewy, for instance, you know, the, the pet supply company. Um, People treat their pets like their children. We all know that. Gee, I would totally um, you know that. You, you guys have seen how I... Yeah. Well, yeah, you fly freaking from Puerto Rico to L.A. every, like, week or so just to go visit your chocolate lab. Yep. I, I mean, yep. I dare say you're a guy who would not buy that cheap kibble. You're probably buying that guy filet mignon. <laughs> He's got very special kibble. Yes. Well, um also, I'd say, you know, the Lululemon earnings tonight, uh, that one, Rob, uh, is a sign that people will not give up their comfort. That's one of the last things to go. Uh, so they reported blowout earnings tonight. Uh, Chewy, blowout earnings yesterday, and today it's up, you know, double digits. Uh, Lulu is screaming higher. People won't give up their comfort yet, and they won't give up their pets yet. And it's not a question of, of course, not feeding your pet. It's a question of trading down like you've probably traded down for various other things that, you know, you find necessity tells you you've got to have a roof over your head and you've got to have food. We all know that. Um, but you don't always have to eat steak. Maybe you trade down to chicken. Um, maybe you have to trade down into just grains like pasta and things like that. There are a bunch of different ways people trade down to save money because they're feeling the pinch. And I think, Rob, the fact that we're talking about these delinquencies being as big as they are is somewhat worrisome. So again, not being a pessimist, but just being a realist, that could come back uh, to really bite us in the rear. A lot of these, not just discretionary spends, but other spending that consumers do and after all, we're 70% of the economy on our And what happened with AI? We were talking about AI's stock uh, on our Tuesday uh, Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter spaces. And that was right before their in earnings came out, right? And I think I asked you the question, what if, their, what if their earnings are low? Maybe I didn't. But clearly, their earnings did fall shy, right? And the stock took a tumble. Did you uh, see that coming? Believe it or not, I don't think it was that the earnings missed. I think it was that the optimism that was there for NVIDIA was not there for them. Um, their CEO chose to keep it, keep those cards close to his vest, chose to not um, offer the same optimistic outlook that the NVIDIA CEO offered. And thus the stock fell at one point, I think it was down 24%, Rob. Now, by the end of the day, it had scrambled a little um, and earned back some of what it had lost. Uh, but yesterday, uh, of course, I was far more optimistic about it. Today, it closed at about $35, $34.75. Last night, it closed at $40. So obviously, this is a pretty significant drop. And it was all the way down to $30.26 this morning, nearly a $10 or 25% drop. And that was because they would not or did not 
choose to offer an optimistic view. Uh, instead, they said, hey, we think we might be profitable by the end of 2024. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear from a stock that has made 180% gain on the year uh, because people will head to the exits and that's just what they did today, Ron. And so, John, is there a larger lesson in that about how the market looks at, at not just earnings, but how a company projects itself? I mean, you could argue they were being realistic or being going, look, we're going to do fine, but not as quick as you think. And yet the market was like, no, thank you. <laughs> right. Because AI should be fine. Right. I mean, they should, that company should be oh. fine. Yeah. And in fact, Rob, we had some unusual activity in Micron today, symbol MU. Um, and I suspect that's because they're probably a top 10 AI play. Um, most of us on the show could name most of those top five or top 10 AI plays. And they it starts with chat or, or C3, uh, which is AI, the symbol, of course, parent company of chat GPT and all the other iterations of chat GPT. But it, then it goes over to NVIDIA, it goes over to Microsoft, it goes over to Google, it goes to Amazon, it goes to Tesla, it goes to Palantir, it goes to Micron, because Micron also makes chips that are really, really in demand for the sort of calculations that AI is able to do. And uh, I, I just think it was... I, I'm not saying that the CEO made a mistake. I'm saying he was being uh, very cautious with his guidance for uh, AI today and or last night. And that's why instead of rocketing to the upside, it gave up, uh, you know, basically $5 net on the close, uh, close to close, roughly a $5 drop. So would you, would you personally, would you buy AI right now? Would you wait? Bought it this morning. That's what I thought you were going to say. I, <laughs> I bought the yep. chip. <laughs> and I didn't buy it at 30 bucks and I didn't buy it at 31. I bought it at 32. But, um, and it, that might not be, uh, you know, the low that I'm able to buy it at over the next week or so. You know, depending on the, the resolution of uh, what we get as far as uh, jobs reports and outlook for the Fed on the 14th, you know, the two-day Fed meeting, 13th, 14th, and so forth, that's where the focus is now. So I'm not patting myself on the back. Yeah, it's up $2.70 from where I bought it, um, but I, I do have a very optimistic view for this stock, Rob. Alex, did you buy it this morning? Uh, I did not. And and to the narrative, uh, you know, we spoke about AI uh, related crypto on the last show and we saw a rise uh, from when we spoke about it on the show, not because of us, but it was going into a, uh, you know, into a trend. We saw that rise and, and uh, we've seen it give back its gain so far. So hopefully uh, it can make up some ground again. And what are we seeing, Alex, in the crypto overview? And I love the fact, you know, you obviously come out of the the hedge fund world. So feel free to weigh in on the trad market as well if you want, as you lean into the overview. You know, we did get we did get some some interesting employment data this morning. More jobs but lower month to month and fewer jobless claims, but more month over month. Um, so curious how if any of that seems to be, you know, factoring into crypto. Yeah, absolutely. So like you just pointed out, let's start with uh, the tr the track by side of things. 
Um, uh, you know, we had mixed signals from employment data this morning. Uh, more jobs than expected, but as you said, lower month over month. We had less jobless claims. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, we had more jobs than expected, lower month over month. We had less jobless claims than expected, but more month over month. A lot of a lot of switch hitting there. Um, equities, they really seem to like the news uh, for a bit, but little no reaction from crypto. Um, and particularly after we had a steep drop during the Asia session yesterday. So if anybody was paying attention to the charts, uh, you know, they saw the uh, the overnight um, have a drastic downturn price action overall across the markets. Uh, total crypto market cap basically unchanged on the day, $1.13 trillion, with yet again, and as I keep preaching this, and I'm going to touch on it again in a minute, light volume of about $30 billion dollars. Uh, Bitcoin lost its 27,000 level and made a couple tears come to my eyes because I thought we were really uh, holding steady up there um, from earlier in the week, dropping to about 26,940 right now with uh, $14.6 billion in volume trading hands today. But here's the significance of that. It, it, we, If you listen to the show, you will notice uh, how over the last month I've been talking about the drastic uh, minus in percentage of volume being traded each time we've hit this part of the uh, discussion. We posted a small plus 3% versus average uh, in trading volume. So I was really happy to see that. It also shows maybe we're kind of getting to that bottom. Um, if you've listened to me here on the show the last two weeks, the number has been between minus 15% and minus 20%. Ethereum, not gaining or losing any ground today. We're at uh, 1,870 on five and a half billion trade volume. Um, but we did see that volume is down another 13% versus average. And speaking of volume, which I've been reporting on below numbers all through the month, uh, May, May saw spot exchange volume down a whopping 27% at $439 billion traded compared to April, which had just over $600 billion traded. Thanks to the block for that data, which also showed that last month's volume was the lowest level since October 2020 at $222 billion. Um, we, we've been going through a period of a bear market, decreased demand, uh, less money's been invested in the market in the past year. I highlighted this again on Tuesday's show before numbers were out to keep an eye on the spot exchanges. And their business revenue from fees has gotten very light. The you know crypto credit and repo markets have all but dried up because of the bankruptcies in 2022. I would not be surprised if there were a few roadshows to raise some cash coming up. Hey Alex, let me ask you about the volume question. And I know, you know, we always joke about make volatility great again. Um, but also just looking at volume. I mean, when you just said that that it's the low, you know, the drop, the 27 percent drop, and the lowest since 2020. What, what does that tell you? short term but what does it tell you more medium or long term i mean is that a it's not a good sign but i mean you explained why is that is that a good time to be looking going this volume will come back up now or is it likely to continue to stay low if you can even sort of speculate on that well you know that's a good question and there's, there's a, a few different facets there you know some analysts uh, are saying we're about to see a a you know major price action movement in Bitcoin, um, and that goes to the DXY uh, data. So right now, 
DXY, which is dollar strength data, is it's we're coming up to year to date level highs. And anybody who's been in crypto for a while, particularly as a trader, uh, realizes that historically Bitcoin trades um, uh, against the DXY. So when DXY goes up, Bitcoin goes down and vice versa. Well, you know, a couple of these uh, analysts are saying, you know, DXY is uh, is is pretty much a dead cat, cat bounce right now. We're hitting year-to-date highs. We expect it to fall, and therefore we expect BTC to rise. Um, you know, we'll see if that, you know, if that comes to fruition over the next, uh, you know, week or so, let's say. Um, but hopefully that drives some volume into exchanges. The other thing is we go through ebbs and flows. Um, if you've been, you know, this is my and flow in a crypto cycle uh, over the years. Um, this is a time where a lot of long-term holders start dollar cost averaging back into the market in order to take profits from their next cycle. A lot of people excited about the halving, uh, you know, that we're more than halfway through with Bitcoin uh, coming up to kind of drive that 2024 bull market run again. So um, there's a couple different camps and a couple different ideas with a couple different time directions. Well, and it wouldn't be right not to bring Nick into this, Nick from Trade the Chain, because you, Alex, talked about the about the Bitcoin losing, you know, losing and, and dropping the 26940. Um, again, for those of you new to B3 Nation, Nick Nick Nick's like an astrologist. He follows the stars of his charts, but it seems to work pretty well. Nick, so what are you seeing? Yeah, so uh, 100% agree with what Alex is saying um, in relation to volume. A uh, little bit of my thesis, and I think you know it's it's a bit obvious to most people, but the market maker news that we discussed a couple weeks back, coupled with you know Operation Choke Point, is definitely not making the space attractive for new entrants seeking risk uh, or yields. If you you know go ahead and look at AI and equities. Uh, it's a bit understandable why, you know, the 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 most greedy market, if you will, being crypto is not being looked at fondly because, you know, if NVIDIA is going up 20%, then you've got all your volatility that you really want in terms of risky assets. So, um, the you know, saying that it, tides will eventually shift, you know, greed will always return. We've been saying that for quite some time. Uh, but in relation to what we're looking at in terms of Bitcoin price action, we are very near that 26.5. 5k level that you've heard me mention time and time again it is the line in the sand as i find that as i hear myself saying quite often uh what we need to do is get back above 27.5k for the bulls to come back into season i have a feeling we'll probably be end up we'll probably end up bouncing between 26.5 and 27.5 throughout the next week uh we do have uh, some some more data coming up in the fomc meeting as i think in two weeks which will be a very pivotal moment for how we look at uh future fed actions and digesting inflation and unemployment data we have more unemployment data tomorrow as well so if that that does not point in the right direction, then I believe crypto will take a bigger hit than equities will. But again, 26.5 is lying in the sand. Break below that, and we start to uh, target that 25K number, which will be extremely critical heading into the rest of the year for bullish price action. That is, if you want to talk about a line in the sand, 25K is pretty much the line in the sand. So um, I won't dig into Ethereum too much because I'm sure that'll come up later, but uh, 
price action is not too sexy, but we are still above key levels that I'm looking for. And I'm, I'm still looking for longs above 26.5K. Awesome. Thanks. Everybody, you're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. We do this 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, Tuesdays and Thursdays, with a weekend edition on Sunday, also at 5.30. It's at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us at Get Rev Radio. We love our followers. We love you listening. We love you to follow and retweet the space so others can join in. Um, we have a lot of fun here. We also get a lot of insights. And I will say, credit to you guys, you often call a lot of things right. Um, and, and John, I think to your credit, you said you did not, you thought we were going to get out of the woods on this debt ceiling at the last minute. I was a skeptic saying they were going to drag it a little farther over the cliff. Um, much to his credit, whether you like him or not, Speaker McCarthy managed to p- pull off getting, getting, getting both Republicans and Democrats to vote for this thing. And Biden gets credit on, on his side as well. It's shocking to me that more Democrats voted for it than Republicans. That's an interesting political note. And it does still have to clear the Senate. But but I'm guessing the market's sighing a big sigh of relief going, we didn't really want to have this battle to start with. And thank thank you guys for doing your job and fixing it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a, a crisis of their own making, Rob just like the next one will be, because they make it so. Um, I loved what Warren Buffett said when he was asked, well, how would you solve the uh, uh, balancing the budget problem? And he said, easy. I would just tell Congress that, uh, and obviously none of us can just tell Congress these have to be um, codified and put into law, but he said he would... uh, just make it so that if you if Congress couldn't balance the budget, nobody in Congress could run for re-election. So obviously, since the House has to run basically 24-7 because they never stop running for re-election, the, the Senate has those six-year terms, so they have a little more insulation. But again, if they could not run for re-election, they would fix it, Rob. They would. They absolutely They would balance the budget. The only reason they don't is it's not their money. I mean, collectively, a little bit of it is their money, but it's our money. There are only 100 members of the Senate, 435 members of the House. So these jerks um, should be balancing the budget. Instead, they, you know, just keep kicking the can down the road. We're going to go to 33 trillion. We're going to go higher than that, I'm sure. And there is no way that they can possibly do anything but just pay the interest on this debt that they've got right now, Rob. And that, it's oh, go ahead. We're we're long past the time when they needed to just stop the spending um, of more money. They can still spend; they just can't spend more than they take in. But they do every single year. Yeah, and look, it's not it's not going away. And, you know, you guys remember back in the day on the Gen Xer, you know, Leader Lead, the organization I started, had to cut the deficit in half pledge where people had the pledge to cut it in half or quit, not seek reelection. We actually got 150 members to sign it, you know, and that was the year 94 when Clinton did cut the, the Clinton and the Republicans did get the deficit cut in half. But that was just cutting in half the annual deficit. Right. My question on the market side, the politics of this aside, and the fact that nobody can be happy that we keep spending more than we have, it's a horrible thing to to bequeath your future generation is just massive debt. Does the market care or are they just happy that they lifted the debt ceiling? I mean, does that actual market look and go, 
This is a problem. And we're going to now have a spending battle in which we might have a government shutdown in a couple months. That's certainly a possibility. Well, they moved it out further than just a couple months. Oh, no, I didn't mean for they the moved ceiling. I meant for the actual budget, oh. you know, the stopgap budget measures that they now have to fight. Yeah, they, they won't care at all. Um, not even one little bit. If they cared, we wouldn't have got over... 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 30 trillion. They just don't care, Rob. So um, that's not a pessimist in me at all, but it's just a recognition of if they keep doing the same thing over and over again, you got to believe that they will keep doing the same thing over and over again. They have no reason to stop. And Alex, you know, again, I always ask you this about the, about, and Nick, feel free to weigh in too on the Bitcoin part and on the crypto side. But, you know, it certainly seemed to help Bitcoin, this this battle. Now that they've resolved it, you know, I don't think it makes any difference. But I just think we've baked into the way we look at things that this is what Congress does. I mean, John's right. Nobody thinks they're going to actually not do this. They create these problems. We spend what we don't have. The markets seem to function just fine anyway. And crypto, you know, does offer an alternative. But that's really more more about the the dollar itself, right? We'll talk about the Fed in a minute. I mean, that's less about a reaction to the, our debt. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, more of a, a correlation to the dollar. I'll let Nick uh, comment on that since that's one of his specialties and following uh, on the desk here. Um, I will say I don't understand why we always take the debt ceiling argument uh, to to the twelfth hour and and on occasion a few rare occasions beyond, um, it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous because we all know it's going to happen no matter what. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, we shouldn't be having out of all the times that we've uh, come to head on this, it shouldn't be happening right now. I think we're in a weak uh, political uh, stance across the world both from an economic and a ruling perspective. And I think we need to show more order in our own house um, to the outside uh, world because I feel like 2022, 23, and going into 24, we're not playing games here on the world stage anymore, you know? So um, they'll pass it, but all this bickering back and forth is just optical nonsense. Nick, you want to weigh in? Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with Alex. Um, as a young man growing up in this political spectrum, it's certainly not uh, confidence inducing for the future. But uh, this is why we have the show, figure out how to make money so we don't have to uh, to worry about that so much. So when it comes to the dollar and relation to crypto and equities now, an actual fascinating thing has taken place during the month of May. DXY, the dollar in the U.S. dollar index, has been moving with Bitcoin since the month of May. It actually started uh, a few days prior to the month of May. This this correlation, but we are still seeing um, some decorrelation from equities, and most notably, if you were watching the dollar index yesterday into today, about a one and a half percent drop, and equities are up uh, several percentage points from, or I think one percentage point from the morning. So if you are tracking the inverse relationship or or the just any relationship from the dollar to risk assets right now what i would focus on is an inverse relationship as it compares to equities and as it compares to bitcoin right now it's unfortunately a um it is a, a full correlated relationship so um the fascinating thing about that is like i said it's been during the month of may and the month of may is a very weird meme month if you will sell in may and go away we've heard that plenty of times but nasdaq and equities are up you know thanks 
relates to AI. So we'll have to kind of digest this information, I think, into, you know, the first and second week of June to see if the correlation and decorrelation continues as it is today. But if you're leaving the show and going into this weekend and next week, just know inverse relationship with equities uh, as it compares to the dollar uh, and a correlated relationship to Bitcoin as it compares to the dollar. Well, all right, let's talk a little about the Fed and and the, you know, the, the upcoming Fed meetings and what they're going to do. John, I start with you, you know, in terms of whether or not the Fed will hold steady, cut or raise. It's like we're playing cards well, here. You're gonna, are you going to hold? Uh, they won't raise. They won't cut. They won't cut Rob until the fourth quarter. It's been my prediction forever, um, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, but I do think they will pause uh, before uh, the fourth quarter, and I still think, and I'm holding out hope, that they pause this time. Now, tomorrow's uh, jobs numbers will have something to do with that, of course, but we are seeing a rapid slowdown in spending those credit card delinquencies I spoke of, um, as well as, Rob, the, the idea that the uh, consumer is being impacted by each of these rate increases. Now, it's not the same as it was in 2008 when uh, a, a very significantly larger number had uh, mortgages that were tied to uh uh, the the movements of the Fed funds rate and so forth. In other words, adjustable rate rather than fixed rate mortgages. Um, but nonetheless, I think as Neil Kashkari said, the uh, ability to pause doesn't mean that you've stopped and you can't start again. Pausing gives you time to decide. Oh, okay, let's let's give this a month to play out. Let's see how we go. We can always raise between meetings as well, if necessary. But I think things are slowing fast enough now. I think we've got enough signs of deflation, not just in the soft commodities, but even in crude oil and elsewhere, that we could certainly pause rather than increase rates. Um, and, you know, it's it, some people thought it was as high as 75% that they were going to do a 25% BIP, uh, increase. I still think it's a coin toss, and I think that if cooler heads prevail, they won't uh, move the rate up again. They will pause and wait for more data. What makes them move? What could happen, you, you, you guys, that would make them push it up? I mean, you both, John and Alex, you both talked about the employment stuff. And I actually don't even know why is less jobless claims than expected, but more month over month. Why is that bad? What does that actually mean? But obviously, employment data could affect this, right? I mean, in terms of what the Fed does. Clearly, what, what the employment data is a major driver um, for what the Fed is going to do. And this is the last one of those that we're going to get prior to the 13th and 14th, the two-day meeting. Um, but I think that we're likely to see um, uh, other uh, inputs as far as consumer spending, consumer confidence and so forth. And um, if it doesn't seem that the consumer is going to just go, uh, and as Mark likes to say, have the the, the summer of, uh, oh, shoot, now I'm forgetting. Oh, summer of George, summer of George. Summer of George, yeah. Summer of George. If, if we're doing the summer of George, that's one thing. And good call by you, catch by you, Rob. 
But if it's not the summer of George and instead they're having the pause of George where the consumer isn't out there just willy-nilly spending, um, but instead is cutting back. And I think it's likely, Rob, that the consumer is going to continue to cut back, especially if they want to hold on to some cash going into the summer for some sort of trip. They're going to have to save some money. Um, and th with all the credit card debt that there is out there, that would be a smart thing for them to pause and to save money so that perhaps they can drive to the shore, drive to Yosemite or Yellowstone or whatever that might be, travel to Europe. That's why I think a pause would be something that gives the Fed time to look rather than and truly be data dependent. Because all uh -huh. the data right now is point, you know, from the M1 money supply, M2, from all of these various metrics, we are spinning towards the potential recession uh, that none of us want. And even the Fed doesn't want a recession to be shallow or deep. They don't want a recession, period. And if they paused, I think they could avoid it. Alex, you think they're going to heed John's advice, or will they be the feckless Fed? And by the way, Summer of George oh. refers to a Seinfeld episode with George. You can go check it out. <laughs> if it's still available on your streaming platform, if they haven't taken that content off now because they're, they're cutting back content. Listen, the, the, as, as our great colleague, uh, Mark Lopresti, likes to name him the feckless Fed, um, you know, they've, they appear to have done nothing in the greater interest of good for the common folks uh, for the last couple of periods. Um, I think what John is saying is correct. Uh, I also would love, listen, this is a different topic, but I'd love to see uh, a different sort of metric or, or, or composite uh, algorithm put together on how they base their decisions. There's too many uh, trailing indicators uh, that they use for forward-looking, uh, you know, analysis. We're in a time where things happen in a quarter-over-quarter basis, not a year-over-year -year basis anymore. Um, so I think they need to get up to date with that because they continually hurt, uh, uh, you know, the economy with their what seem to be out-of-date decisions when they come to big. Um, I agree with John 100%. I think consumers are still very, very nervous about what happened last summer. You know, in August, September, we saw 10% inflation. Uh, in Europe, we saw gas prices uh, go through the roof, uh, which curtailed uh, vacations. Um, and I think people are nervous about being broke, especially since uh, uh, probably not a lot of the average consumer has so what John pointed out, credit card space left anymore, you know, after we surpassed the one dollar for the first time in history. So uh, I think we're, you know, consumer confidence numbers are going to be still relatively uh, scary for the economy. And I think that, you know, going into a, a mild recession is still on the on the ball. But I still say that we do, we do 25 bips next, 25 bips the segment after, and we don't drop. For this year, all right. So you're in. You're in for a 25. You're raising 25. John is. 100%. John is. John is holding, <laughs> and nobody's cutting. Um, I, I'm. I'm on the fence. I think it might be 25 more too. Let me ask you. Uh, and inflation factors into that too. This is something I, I don't really know what it is, but it's called excuseflation. That is profit-led inflation. So I guess companies hike prices more than they need to cover rising costs. Uh, so, you know, I guess that's something you could do. You do it in a war, you do it in a pandemic, make an excuse out of it. 
everybody thinks that's happening. Well, people think reflation happens. He, he, I've always thought it does. It seems like people raise prices and then they don't put them back down. Is it a real thing or is it just, I mean, it's obviously it happens, but is it actually a significant factor or, or does it, is it kind of not, or does it actually contribute to inflation? Silence. <laughs> I'm, not an touch, to that. I'm not going to touch that. John is is corporate is corp do corp corporations raise money raise costs often higher than they need to they don't push them back down is that actually a contributor to inflation or oh of just course it stuff? is of course it is because um and I'll name several examples Rob but uh, uh when when everybody around you is uh, able to get away with raising prices um. You know, we're talking about, you know, the thing that people criticize most about capitalism, and that is it's about making money. And so if if uh, you, you're not just here as a service to people, you're here to make money. If you're heading up one of these companies, you're here to make money. Um, now, there's a delicate balance between you know, ripping people off and uh, being able to eke out a little bit more of a profit. But I would point out, Rob, that Oats, for instance, anybody that wants to can pull up a, uh, a chart of oat futures for this year, 2023, and see that oats are down on the year. They could do the same thing. Uh, corn is up slightly, I think. Wheat is down on the year as well. Not quite double digits, but down. And yet inputs for things like, and wheat, of course, is a staple for anything from flour to uh you know, bread making and so forth, oats, the same thing, except oats are most people would recognize them as far as human consumption for uh, breakfast cereal and so forth, hot breakfast cereal, but also granola bars, um, you know, breakfast bars and things like that. A lot of oats in there. Those are not cheaper this year, despite the fact that the major input is down. They are higher. So that would be a pretty good example, I think, Rob, of, yeah, people move up prices because they can. Now, what they will likely do is if, if consumers do start cutting back um, in that area, for instance, anything that touches oats, yeah, they would bring it back down to earth. But as long as they can, they will um, be charging more because they can. And that, like I say, that's the biggest criticism of uh, – of, uh, capitalism right now well i want to bring i want to move up we're going to move to the crypto block in a few minutes um and, and by the way this is the bulls bears and blockchain twitter spaces follow us at get rev radio tweet out the space we do this every tuesday thursday 5 30 eastern time and a sunday special edition we also have a show after this it's called beyond b3 it's kind of like star trek going you know into into the universe and we take this show so that you guys out there listening b3 nation can participate it's a lot of fun um, it's very interactive. We'll have some guests on there too. So stick around after we finish in, in about 20 minutes for the Beyond B3. But one more question on the agriculture thing before the crypto. And by the way, you guys, I don't know if you know this, but I used to grow oats. I'm not kidding. As a kid, I was a farm kid. We we grew oats. Not not enough to affect the commodities prices. But I do I do know a little bit about oats just from growing them. But what happens, John and, and Alex, if 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 food if you know if food costs keep going up, I mean supply costs. I know they haven't lately, but they did last year when you know Russia, you know, in, invaded Ukraine and suddenly you know sky, sky high for commodities, soybeans, oil, wheat, corn. 
I mean, is there a risk there that that um, that although some of those supplies have recovered, that we could actually see inflation go up, back up? I guess people call it egg egg reflation or eggflation. Food sure, prices chance. more than others. There's, like, there's there's a solid chance, but obviously, again, uh, because we are the breadbasket for the world, um, we are capable of producing more um, and. Many farmers in the United States did that, and I think they, along with me and many of you listening, were surprised by the lack of, I was on with Gordon Chang yesterday over at Fox with Larry Kudlow, um, Rob, and I know, you know you're a former Fox guy. Um, Gordon Chang is one of the experts globally on China, as well as a number of political Item yeah, my, yeah, he's smart. He right. knows his stuff. Oh, yeah. And we'll get him on. I asked him if he'd come on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, and he said he'd love to. So we'll do that. But we'll need a little time to, you know, uh, uh, basically advertise it because getting a guy like Gordon on is is a coup. It's wonderful to have it. But um, he was talking about the recovery in China is real. The uh, uh, lockdown and the people breaking out of lockdown did not spend as robustly as we in the West thought that they would. He said, I wasn't surprised, John, but he said everybody uh, in the West that doesn't know China the way an expert like Gordon Chang does um, was surprised uh, that the China purchase of our goods was not what we thought it would be. They don't make, they don't generate enough food on their own to feed that billion-person uh, populace in China. So you would think, with them having to buy from us and the lack of things coming out of Ukraine and Russia, that this would have been something that would drive demand and thus prices up. And yet it hasn't, because they cut back and they're not bullish on where they are economically in China right now. He said, you know, John, we had two negative quarters in a row, January, not quarters, months, January and February in China. And yet they tried to tell us that in uh, March they made up for it and drove it to a whatever it was, 4.7% growth after two negative months in a row leading into March. He said, never happened, will not happen, didn't happen. So that's, I think, a pretty strong sign that obviously... The numbers we get out of China, nobody really believes them. Um, but the demand we can track because we can track shipments, not as many as we thought. Um, the, the, the best thing that they have experienced really has been Russian oil flowing like water into China and China then refining it and selling it into India and elsewhere. Um, that has been happening. But as far as demand in China, no, that has not been happening. Such an interesting analysis, John. And yes, no one believes the numbers out of China, just like they don't believe the words out of Gary Gensler's mouth. Who I will ask you before we go to the crypto section, is Gary Gensler a poser, just in oh. case you've changed your mind? No, I've not changed my mind here. Still a poser. Um, <laughs> Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, hey, no, before not. we move to the crypto section, friend of the show, Rob Nunn, has his hand up. Um, welcome, Rob Nunn. How you doing? Good, thank you for having me. I just wanted to um, uh, come to John and speak on the farming piece. Um, my my holding company is looking at buying up farms. One of the things that 
we found and our finding is the average age of the farmer is high. In Europe, it's about uh, 59 years old is an average age of farmers. In the United States, it's 55, something like that. So still pretty high. So in terms of inflationary pressures, I wouldn't necessarily look to short term. I'd actually be looking to medium term threats. If these farms can't get operators on, and if you look at um, workplace renewals for farmers, even if you take technology under account, they're under they're under farmed on a 30-year horizon by about 35 to 40% of the workforce. So that dictates probably roughly 35 to 40% of the land um, would be would be unfarmed. Actually, you know, on, on basic parameters, that would be true. But it's actually much more than that, because small holdings won't be able to get the employees. So actually, the, and small holdings make up most of the farmland. So it's, it, I think in terms of food pressures in a medium term, it's actually workforce pressures are going to be the biggest thing and, and North America for agriflation in in the meantime, and I'm not I'm not entirely bullish about food. That's what, one of the reasons we're moving into it is that um, I, I'm actually doing it, you know, not only obviously for profit and we're capitalists, uh, but but also you know there's there's a genuine concern that you know half of the farms in the UK, uh, about a third of the farms in France, about. 23% of the farms in the United States won't actually be farmed. They'll just turn into pony paddocks, and, and that will drive food inflation up, which is a big problem, just to add to that. Yeah, Thank yeah John, you want to respond to that? I mean, so it sounds like you're saying, Rob, you actually think we might see a lot of, of agriflation and eggflation in the next year or two or couple of years. Yeah, I think like, I think maybe not in the next few years. I think that's, that's fine. But in, the, in a five to 10-year window, I really don't see how that doesn't if the average age of a farmer is 55 and the average retirement age for somebody in in, in that sort of labor is 63 the, the 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 window for those farms to continue operating and if the if the workforce isn't there to bring bring in a replacement and technology is not advancing quick enough we are going to see not a you know not a drastic reduction in food it'll be year on year but you know that's going to drive up cost per unit but on a simple economics terms and that that definitely will create inflation being sticky uh for, in, in my view anyway Rob, yeah, thank that, you thank you for that go ahead john makes a lot of sense rob it makes a lot of sense and uh uh you know none of us uh except uh, uh for people that are involved uh none of us would like to see at that sort of inflation hit but it is on the way, and it's just a question of how far out into the future is that inflation. And I don't think it's it's even that far out into the future. And will our will AI be farming for us? <laughs> no. <laughs> will the machines be farming? That's no. Well, I mean, there's a serious point on that. I mean, AI does amazing things for farming already in terms of like planting, but in terms of actually doing it, no way. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I, I, I just going to recommend you all go watch Battlestar Galactica before it's pulled off a streaming service and see the future. <laughs> just say. Well, and and where he's exactly right again, Rob, is that um, AI has all kinds of applications beyond what most people would think of. I mean, when when we've talked in the past about telemetry and vehicle data, well finding a way so that a vehicle doesn't spend as much time idling in traffic um, is a very good thing for the planet and a good thing for that delivery company or that Uber driver, whatever it might be. Um, and the same way, finding the most uh, efficient way, the farmer probably thinks he or she knows the most efficient way to uh, uh, plow that field or to reap the harvest and so forth. And in some cases, they are right. 
In other cases, there may be an AI application that could figure out a better way um, for that farmer to spend less money, put less carbon dioxide into the uh, atmosphere and so forth by doing it a different way. Um, so I can't rule that out. And that's one of those ways. But yeah, it's doubtful that it's going to be out there harvesting itself. 20 years, 20 years. Right, that's great conversation, though. It's bulls, rares, and blockchain. We talk about everything. We talk about everything in the TradFi markets, the DeFi, the crypto markets. We cover it all. Web3. We do it every Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time right here at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us, share the space, and follow all the speakers. We also have a special Sunday edition at 5.30 Eastern. And we have the Beyond 3, the Beyond B3, that's a tongue twister show, after our original Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain show. So when we're done in 10 minutes, we move B3 over to Beyond B3. B3 after dark. That's right. And if you're if you're on the other side of the world, it could be B3 before sunrise. But I like B3 after dark. That's going to go right along with a drunken crypto show. Um, Alex, let's talk a little crypto and and, and Nick as well. Um, so I'm going to start with the, with the easy question, which is, you know, and I always ask it, but now that the debt ceiling's being, you know, resolved, obviously, you know, there was a tailwind for crypto assets and certainly for Bitcoin for a little while, but not across the board. Uh, what, are, what, are, what are you seeing in terms of th this next window, the, the upcoming Fed stuff, separate from Bitcoin's own and Ethereum's own universes, the, the TradFi effect on the market? Is it what you've expected or is it kind of not doing what you expected in terms of pushing crypto well, just... i'm gonna let, I'm gonna let Nick take take this one because him and the market rebellion team on our show trading rebellion just uh covered a lot of this today as they do every week so uh he, he's been the one who's been on point yeah i appreciate that alex and a special shout out to alex and john for making the uh, trading rebellion show happen um we do that as a you know, kind of an afternoon just catch all for the markets and technical analysis but this actually came up in our discussions today um and you know the consensus was that the debt stealing news uh if it is passed in time before the x date is not too impactful for crypto. There isn't too much upside because the idea is this is business as usual. The government should be doing their job and there should be no general reward for something that is part of something that they signed up to do in terms of a job function. So the only downside is, of course, if the debt ceiling bill does not get passed in time, uh, that it would likely be calamitous for all risk markets as people kind of, you know, chase, uh, try to be the first person out of the door. Obviously, that's what causes general cascades. But, um, you know, not too much upside for, for good debt ceiling news, but a lot of downside for bad debt ceiling news, I think, is the easiest way to put it. But it's unlikely at this point, right, that we're going to see, and John, you can weigh in on that, but I, I think at this point it's a done deal. The Senate's going to pass this thing. I agree with you as well. I think, you know, with the, what we've seen from the signaling from McCarthy in the House, and I, I guess news just popped up. I think you guys had it up on the, the top of the screen here, but uh, CBS reporting that the Senate may take up the voting as early as tonight uh, in order to have Biden sign it before the X date. I think it's in everybody's best interest to get that done as early as possible before for that June 5th date. Absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. And and yet it, it seems that, uh, thankfully, we have avoided the uh, uh, the horrible result of a, a 14th Amendment application where it doesn't apply. 
Um, that would have been a huge mistake, and it would have, I think, resulted in our uh, debt being downgraded. So whether it happens tonight or extends into the weekend, at least um, we will beat that deadline that Nick just cited for June 5th, which is when they say we would officially have to start um, not paying certain bills. Hey, random question, John, for you before we jump back to the crypto. If When they pass the debt ceiling bill, when it's official, if it's tonight or tomorrow, will the markets do a little rally? And they didn't do a negative one. Will they do a positive one? Like, okay, good, you avoid vertigo and crisis. Will there be a, a, a rally? Or is that kind of probably not since there wasn't on the other side of it? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think now it's all up, Rob, to the, uh, the Fed. Um, so, you know, the little bit of relief we've seen back and forth here and the fact that volatility fell by about 10 or 12% today um, implies strongly that uh, whatever we've seen is what we will see. The rest of it will be on the Fed. Got it. Well, okay, I've got a topic that I'm really excited about. It's actually, um, it's it involves the Telos, Telos chain. Uh, Telos is a relatively unknown uh, a, a chain um, uses sort of rides on the same rails, so, so to speak, as EOS. But Telos announced a partnership with GameStop uh, today, and I actually had Chris Barnes, who's one of the guardians for elected guardians for Telos, on Roundtable earlier today to talk about it. And it's fascinating to me. Basically, Telos, GameStop, you know, who became super relevant with the whole you know Robin Hood thing and, and taking it to the man, but it struggled at not wanting to become blockbuster. Is going to allow Telos players to on their Web two games, not Web three, be able to move assets. So you can own your assets, you can rent them, you can carry them from game to game. It's really fascinating to me because it's a smart play to take Web two games because people think Web three is too slow. A lot of gamers are like those games. It's you need to make them faster. But this is working with Web two. So, um, Mark, Alex, uh, uh, Mark's not here. Alex, John, Nick, and I think we may even have DJ and Max. Just weigh in on on what this means and and what it means sort of for the Web three space and also what it means for gaming. Yeah, I'm actually really g glad you mentioned this topic because it actually came up in many of the communities that I'm in today. Um, you know, one of them being Trade the Chain. We we have a uh, a game designer in our in our community, and we were chatting about the the potential impact of uh, Web three on gaming in the future. And I do believe, especially with Apple and uh, Meta coming out with VR headsets and kind of this new, uh, you know, new generation of gaming becoming very prolific. And it's a new narrative, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, metaverse and future state games. I do think that Web3 has the opportunity to have a large impact, A, from what you mentioned, being able to, you know, link up one company's, you know, entire set of games to a potential blockchain to then uh, transact, uh, you know, those assets on chain and send a fee back to the company there and it's all verified and that that way you know they're not printing you know two or three of the ultra rares and that you 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 know it, it went from you to john to joe to sally etc cetera, etc cetera. these are all new business and revenue streams for the company let's say we all had a dollar that we were betting on a hundred person game you know we take in 90 the game takes in 10 that's a new revenue stream and then you're rewarded um you know skins and and things like that then you sell those to friends the company takes a percentage of revenue share 
So I have a feeling that, you know, and, it, and we may not see Web3 gaming take massive impact immediately because it's going to take a GTA 6 or a Call of Duty adopting this to then have the rest of the industry have a wake up call. But I do think that Web3 Gaming and that narrative and that sector will have a very bullish next couple of years based on the proliferation of companies like GameStop and like, um, I forget, Rockstar Games, who's making GTA, starting to implement play to earn and play and earn. Yeah, and DJ and Max is joining us. You know, I think it's fascinating. And to, to Nick, to what you were saying, DJ and Max, asking you this. Um, I think the the, the, stu- the big studios, are, GameStop has good relationships with them. So they'll get some the, the big studio gamers in on this. They'll be using those games. It's a natural evolution for them then to start moving into the Web3 space, start letting letting gamers actually, maybe if, you know, 100 gamers who accomplish blank in this game can be part of helping us do something on the next game, that kind of stuff. But DGen Max, I'm wondering your thoughts on on this as, as a DGen person. Listen, uh, this isn't very degen of me, but I actually hate play to earn. Um, I think games should be fun and earning should be really secondary. I don't think, I think that's where Web3 Gaming went wrong in the last couple of years is that the financial models like with Axie and games like that were just way too incentivized. And what do you got against play to earn? People like Nobody likes it. You know who likes it? The early adopters who then dump on the later adopters and then the economy crashes. Uh, it's it's basically a Ponzi. You need to come up with a fun game where there are incentives to do well in order to make a little bit of money, but the game has to be fun first, and the financial incentive cannot be the primary focus, in my opinion. Interesting. Alex, you got a response to that? You're not a big gamer. You play games. I'm, I'm not great with stars in real life. You play the big games. <laughs> Yeah, I play uh, I play Frogger in real life sometimes when I get bored. Um, listen, the problem is I, I I hear I hear Max, I hear Nick. I think both of them have valid points. Um, I think one of the problems right now is this cash grab uh, currently going on with Web three games. They stink. Their UIs are boring. And to Nick's point, we need a catalyst of a really fascinating game. That's a true game because right now you have Web3 games that are worse than Nintendo in 1984. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's what's interesting, by the way, everybody, about the GameStop deal with Telos. They're not, this isn't Web3 games. This is Web2 gaming. You can, you know, you can move your assets within Web2 games. It's just using Telos as a means to own those assets, rent them, lease them, take them to other games. That's a utility function. That's different than, you know, I think that does have have value john curious to you though when you're looking at GameStop, is this a smart play for GameStop who wants to stay relevant they don't want to become blockbuster and this would seem like a good way to do it um it would bob um i don't disagree with you um and GameStop has had you know a, a host of supporters and haters for years i mean you know the the company is based down in texas it's primarily a retailer for uh, these products, so not the game creator, not like, for instance, a Take-Two. So where GameStop looked to make its money was basically getting away from the bricks-and-mortar stores and going more for virtual and uh, VR-type products so they might be selling 
the VR headsets and all that sort of stuff, Rob, but they don't create the games really. Um, so I would say that's more of a TTWO, Take-Two Interactive, or you know EA Sports or whatever. Those sorts of companies much more than um, GameStop. Right. It's interesting, though, last thing on this, because they don't create the games, and yet by becoming a conduit for people to have, have to play those games on GameStop because they get more interactivity, more utility, can do more. It's a big deal. You can move your assets around. Yeah. You know, I do think that... That that creates value for GameStop to stop to start being, you know, positioned to knock out a business because they're a brick and mortar retailer. Yeah, and I think you're 100 percent right, uh, Rob. And taking kind of the signal from Max is, you know, that what you're saying is that they're taking Web two games and implementing Web three technology to make you know the business model and the consumerism of the product much more prevalent. And I think that right there is the focal point. Nobody cares whether their assets are on Ethereum or are some private, uh, you know, company ledger. Nobody cares about that. All they want to know is that there's no duplicates, there's no scams going on, and that the product works seamlessly people you know when we talk about play to earn and play and earn again the models are bad because you can't just get a bunch of people on a system and then playing a bad game the game is what attracts the system and i think that's where the backward the backwardation of the crypto sector went wrong with web3 gaming and web3 marketing is if you hand a bunch of people a tokens to play a shitty game it's still a shitty game and so you know right. you, you're you're not going to get anything out of those people so start with a powerful game Make it super seamless and easy so that your grandma understands that she can make five bucks for selling a hundred dollar product and then, you know, loop it into easy financials so that people can then get their money back and put money in the system seamlessly. That's what Roblox does. It's what Fortnite does. It's what Rockstar Games does. Right now, there's no way to pull money out of the system. Right now, there's no way to verify that your asset is the is the legit asset that you claim it to be. So once those two things are enacted, massive business model expansion for games. Gaming. Yeah, and good for Telos for pulling this off, a relatively unknown chain, right? I mean, Alex, that's, it's a good coup for them. 100% agreed. I think it's a it's a great step, and it's going to be a big signal to the rest of the industry. Any game creator who's not seeing the ability to make more money off of these types of products is blind, in my opinion. Therefore, I think in the next 10 years, you'll see it a lot. Well, guys, it's been a great conversation. It is time for us to switch over to Beyond B3. Let me just remind everyone, you're listening great to, to Bullspin. Great Go to ahead. have Rob Nunn on, too. Uh, yeah, Rob, Rob Nunn, thank you. Those Absolutely. were great comments. We got to have you back. Yeah, Rob Nunn, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. No, it's great. Really insightful. DJ Mox, thank you. Alex, Nick, uh, John. Thank you all as well. Thank you, B3 listeners, for listening. We do it every Tuesday, every Thursday, 5.30 Eastern, a Sunday edition at 5.30. It's the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Show on Get Rev Radio. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.